we're going to be in the book of Luke, continuing our study through the book of Luke. We come uh, to Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 45. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 45. We're presented today with a passage of scripture that's very insightful, also a passage that is hope-filled. Our text today deals with an instance where Jesus confronts very directly, very intentionally, the false religion of the leaders of the Jewish tradition here in Jerusalem, where Jesus is at this time. For the whole of this chapter in Luke, all of Luke chapter 20, Jesus has been speaking in the temple, he's been teaching, he's been uh, very much interacting with the Pharisees and the scribes, these Jewish leaders of the day, and what has been demonstrated has been the hypocrisy and the false religion of these men, these Jewish leaders, and certainly what else has been demonstrated has been their hatred of Jesus. As Jesus has been interacting with him, we see over and over again their attempts to attack him, their attempts to discredit him, uh, their attempts to trap him, get him arrested, get him out of the picture. And this instance, which we come to today in Luke chapter 20, as we're going to finish chapter 20 and move into chapter 21, would be one of the last times that Jesus would teach to any crowd. It'd be one of the last times that Jesus would do anything other than teach to his own disciples in a more intimate setting. Soon after this, Jesus does, in fact, direct his attention on teaching and spending time with the 12 disciples. And to cap off this time of teaching in the temple, one of the last times in which Jesus was teaching to crowds, or to anyone other than his disciples, Jesus puts an exclamation point of condemnation and a promise of a coming destruction at the end of this instance, at the end of this uh, time in the temple. But I did mention that this passage was also hope-filled, and that's because, as we'll see throughout this passage today, that while the Jewish system that Jesus is interacting with here is corrupt, it's full of wickedness, full of hypocrisy, full of false teachers of a false religion. Jesus has a plan to rip this system down and to replace it with something far better. So with that in mind, let's start by reading our text. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 45. We'll be reading through verse 9 of chapter 21. And, hearing, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will, dece- will receive the greater condemnation. Verse 1 of chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor woman has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here up one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, 
When will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank, that, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the pages of this book. And Lord, as we set upon the task of, of reading, not only reading, but understanding and applying your words here today, I pray that you would uh, enable us for the task by the Holy Spirit, that we would be uh, faithful, that we would be true to the text, and that you would be glorified among the church. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage today is kind of, um, um, I would say, clearly three scenes, as you could tell from our reading. These are passages that are very commonly broken up and taken one section at a time, but uh, for our purposes today, we're going to take them all together uh, at one time, and seek to read them and understand them in the full context of what is taking place in the scene here in the temple in Jerusalem. And I want to first of all acknowledge, so my, my title today is False Religion Exposed. False Religion Exposed. Because truly that is what Jesus is doing here in our text today. He is exposing among these Jewish leaders here in the temple, this is the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, the pinnacle of Judaism right here. And Jesus is now interacting with these wicked, sinful hypocrites that are the Jewish leaders and is exposing them for what they are, and that is false teachers. And in the process, he is exposing this system to be one of false religion and one that deserves to be destroyed. And I'm going to start by looking at verses 45 through 47 of chapter 20. And point number one of this sermon today is the heart behind the false system. You see, the heart behind the false religious system is what is really being exposed here in verses 45 through verse 47 of chapter 21. As Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking here, as Luke points out, specifically to the scribes. And he's speaking in very harsh terms to these scribes. Who were the scribes? We've talked a little bit in um, previous sermons as we've been making our way through Luke uh, about the Pharisees, maybe a little bit about the scribes, um, but the scribes specifically were the specialists in Jewish law. So there were many Pharisees who were, were very religious, they were very conservative, they were, they were teachers, they were those who helped to lead the people uh, in Judaism, and, and certainly there was corruption there without any doubt, which is why we oftentimes see them together. But not all Pharisees were scribes. Not all of them were experts in the law. But certainly, all scribes were Pharisees and that they were Jewish leaders. They were uh, usually very conservative. But what their primary task was, the task of a scribe, was to be interpreters and teachers of the law interpreters and teachers of the law of Moses. It was their interpretation and their teaching that provided the framework for the pharisaical legalistic system 
of works-based righteousness that we see here on display in our text today. These men, these scribes, as we see, also took great pride in their role as scribes, as keepers of the law, as teachers of the law, and they viewed themselves very highly because of this. They viewed themselves as esteemed, as set apart from the rest of the people because of their connection to, their uh, study of, their knowledge of the law. These were certainly not stupid men. In fact, they were extremely well-educated in the Old Testament scriptures, which makes the offense that we see here in our text even worse, and it's why Jesus delivers such a harsh condemnation to these men, as he says in verse 47, that they will receive a greater condemnation. We see this because, Luke, as Luke chapter 12, verse 48 reminds us, that of those who have been given much, much will be required. It's kind of a, a biblical take on the, the Spider-Man slogan, right? With great power comes great responsibility. There is, in a sense, a biblical argument behind that. These scribes had a greater condemnation because they had a greater knowledge of and a closer connection to a better understanding of God's word. And yet, they failed to obey it and even made a mockery of God's word. These experts in the Old Testament acted like they had never read passages like Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, which says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, and to rob the poor of my people in their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth?" Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is still stretched out. This is Isaiah the prophet speaking of the Assyrians and their coming destruction and what it is that Jesus levies as one of his biggest criticisms of them. One of the biggest issues with the Assyrians, the, the enemies of Israel, is their injustice, their oppression. Specifically, he mentions the way they forsake, the way they rob uh, widows, that widows may be their spoil. In our text here in Luke, what do we see in verse 47? That these scribes devour widows' houses. They devour widows' houses. They were guilty of the very same things that the Assyrians were guilty of in the Old Testament and were condemned so harshly for. If someone unfamiliar with the truth of God's words, acts in a, in a wicked way or an ungodly way, it's no surprise, right? It's expected. However, when one who knows the tr truth and has learned in it, he is then more accountable because of this knowledge. This should serve as a warning for us as Christians today, as people who are acquainted with the truth, as people who are here doing what we are doing today, which is seeking to become more knowledgeable, more acquainted with the truth of God's word. Because what does that then mean for us? It means that we are more accountable, that we have an accountability to the truth that has been revealed to us. The hypocrisy that Jesus is pointing out 
in these scribes stems from the fact that, as Jesus calls them in Matthew 23, whitewashed tombs. They are death on the inside, but painted up nice and pretty on the outside. In fact, they dress themselves up as we see. They wear long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues. But it was all hypocrisy. On the outside, they adorned, adorned themselves with beautiful long robes, with elaborate tassels. And they seek to be known, respected by the people and insist on being called prestigious names. In fact, uh, what these scribes insisted upon being called, this is what they expected to be called, not what just naturally came out of people's mouths, but it was the expectation of the day that they, they'd be called names like master or teacher. Or even in many cases, they insisted to be called father, something that Jesus speaks out firmly against. And this is why, as our text says, that they would offer long-winded, lofty, wordy prayers. But it was all a pretense. It was pretend. It was fake. It was a sham. These long, elaborate prayers that they would give. How does Jesus say that we are to pray? He says to go into your inner room, right? And plead with the Lord. We see the same thing when the, the Pharisee and the tax collector pray next to each other. And the Pharisee lifts up his hands, looks up to the sky, and gives this elaborate, lofty prayer, while what does the tax collector do? Simply beats his chest and says, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was the one who left that place justified that day. Not the Pharisee who lifted up his hands and prayed elaborate, fake prayers. These prayers were fake because they were not coming from the heart of a true believer. They were coming out of a dead heart. They were coming from a whitewashed tomb. In fact, in Matthew 23, Jesus gives a, a much more kind of lengthy pronunciation of woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. He gives an extended view of what is probably this same encounter that we see here in Luke. And Jesus, in this instance, exposes the truth of the matter in verses 13 through 15. He rips the lid off of this deception that the scribes have going and exposes the disgusting rot and the filth that was actually present in these false teachers and in this false system. Matthew 23, 13 through 15 says this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would, go enter, who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. There's hardly any harsher language spoken in all of the New Testament than what Jesus here levies against the scribes and the Pharisees. The way Jesus describes these men is more than just a misguided believer. It's more than just someone who's maybe believing something that isn't quite exactly right, as, as though they are immature or, or a little bit misguided. No. The way Jesus speaks of these men is that they are an agent of the devil actively working to pave the way to hell. 
He says that the, sh- the door of the kingdom of heaven is shut in people's faces by the work of these men. He says they go through great lengths to make a proselyte. If you don't know what a proselyte is, it's a convert. To convert someone to their religion, to what they believe. Someone who is not ethnically Jew, perhaps, but has adopted Jewish tradition. And for all this effort that they put in, what have they created? They've created a child of hell like themselves. The way that Jesus is speaking to these men is the way he speaks to false teachers. Those who are promoting a false system, a false religion. This is why false teachers are so dangerous. Not just because they might trip people up or they might confuse things on someone's path to the truth, but because in their false teaching, they actively lead people to hell rather than to Christ. J.C. Ryle in his commentary on Mark concerning this story warns that this does not mean, though, that Christians should seek to blend into the world, right? The, the counter-argument to not behaving like these scribes, these Pharisees, is not that we seek to never be noticed by anyone, not that we seek to live like the world around us. It's not that we should be camouflaged. Rather, that Christians should adorn themselves with a beauty of a different kind. Christians should be adorned with godly living that accords with the truth that we claim access to and allegiance to. In fact, J.C. Ryle says this. This is a quote from his commentary on this chapter in Mark. He says, Let our doctrine be adorned by our lives. Let us show the world that there is true coin as well as counterfeit coin. Let us confess our master modestly and humbly, but firmly and decidedly, and show the world that although some men may be hypocrites, there are others who are honest and true. This is a good word from J.C. Ryle. He's saying these false teachers, these false professors, these people that are part of a bad religious system, they are a counterfeit to the true thing. But there is a true thing that they are a counterfeit to. And we are called to put that true thing, that right true coin on display so that the world can see it. So that when they see these hypocrites, when they see the counterfeit, they would identify it as counterfeit and see us as holding the truth. These men, like all false teachers, are counterfeit to the real thing. They are counterfeit to true religion. But there is a true and right religion, a true and right way And it is the responsibility of us as Christians to adorn ourselves with truth and love and compassion and boldness in order to demonstrate to the world not how amazing we are, not to prove to the world that we are somehow great or Christians or or to earn for ourselves a name, but rather to prove how beautiful and amazing God is, right? There is nothing that says more about the glory of God than a redeemed sinner living as a child of God. Nothing more. These dangerous, widow-devouring, hell-child-producing wicked men had been elevated in this false system to a status of celebrity within the Jewish community to the point that if you got a scribe to come to your party, you were doing it right. You must be living right, as people might say today. And this is the sad fact, that whenever these kind of men, false teachers, hypocrites, are elevated to places of power, especially within religious systems, people will suffer, especially the most vulnerable. 
Which brings us to point number two, the victims of the false system. And we see this in verses one through four. Let's read it real quick. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. So I want to go ahead and tell you that with this passage, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 21, I take a minority position. So if you've ever heard a sermon on this text, read a, uh, an exposition of this text about the widow, undoubtedly you have heard this widow or seen this widow portrayed as uh, the breath of fresh air of giving and selflessness compared to the Pharisees. You have seen her as an example of proper giving on display, giving out of, out of our uh, lack of, uh, of money instead of out of our abundance, giving from a pure heart, right? And I would argue that this section as a whole, this chapter, and going into chapter 21, if we take it in our context, that is not what this passage is intended for us to see. In this section of our text, what we actually see is Jesus is sitting back as he is observing this scene that takes place in the temple at this moment. By no coincidence, surely, in this moment we have one whom this text describes only as a poor widow. She comes in as all of these rich people are giving their money out of their abundance, giving great sums, Mark says, the Gospel of Mark. Here comes this woman with two mere copper coins, adding up to about one sixty-fourth of a day's wage, next to nothing. And we see Jesus here observing this widow put in her last two copper coins, all that she had to live on, the text says. And we've just heard Jesus condemning the scribes and the other Jewish leaders for their wickedness and the wickedness of this corrupt system that they have created and that they are overseeing. Now we see entering the scene on cue a widow who is a part of this system, a member of the very demographic that just a few verses earlier we were told that the scribes devour. This woman, though certainly not the villain in this story, is not the hero of the story either. This woman in our story today is intended to be portrayed and seen as a victim. This woman has fallen victim to a bad, false system. And I would put forward briefly a few reasons why I believe this to be a correct interpretation of this text. Number one, it fits most correctly within the context of the whole of this passage. As we've seen Jesus condemning the scribes, calling them out, confronting the false teachers, confronting the false system. And if you see what comes directly after this text, which we're going to get into here in a moment, what do we see is more condemnation, judgment, a, a coming destruction of this system. This is a bad system that we have on the whole as Jesus is describing it. So in that context, here comes this woman who is a part of this system. I think context would dictate that this is not some obscure passage on giving that has now been inserted to the text, but rather falls right in line with the rest of the context of this passage. Also, Jesus never actually offers any word of commendation of this woman. 
He never offers any word of saying, this woman has done correctly. How great is this woman? What a great picture this woman is. Closest we get to that is where he says, truly. All that means is that it's true. This woman has come and has put in all that she has. But Jesus offers no commendation or recognition of this woman, nor does he offer any condemnation of the rich who put in large sums out of their abundance. Thirdly, if we take this passage as an example of right giving, then what are the ramifications of that? How should it be applied? How should it be understood? Does it mean that each one of us should go now and empty our bank accounts, sell all our possessions, bring all the money here to the church and give it to the church and have nothing left? I, I don't think that would be wise. I don't think that the Bible would dictate that we do that either. The text says that this woman gave all that she had to live on. If we were to appropriately follow in the footsteps of, of this woman, that would be what we do, correct? That we go bring all of our money, empty our bank accounts the way this woman has, and give it all here to the church. I don't believe that's what this text is calling us to. I think, in fact, other biblical principles would say that that's not what we are to do. If we were uh, taking this to be the example that we should follow, then what would we do after that? Would we then find someone to leech off of that could support us and our needs and our our support us financially, take care of us? Well, that's not a biblical way of living. The Bible calls us to live as best we can on our own accord. It calls men to care for their households, to provide for their households. That's not a biblical way of living, to bring all the money that you have, leave nothing for yourself or your family, and give it all to the church. Another alternative, okay, if we're not supposed to leech off of someone, then this may have even very well been the fate of this woman, or at least what she expected, is that after bringing all the money that we have, we give it all, save nothing for ourselves, have no money, we've sold our possessions, we have nothing left, we've given it all to the church, and then we go home and die because we have no money to buy food, no money to buy our provisions. But I don't believe this is the conclusion that God's word would bring us to either. Now, let me be clear. The Bible speaks in many other places about the heart behind giving. We should worship in giving of our tithes and offerings, and I think giving out of a heart that, that gives out of uh, joy and gives even to the point that it is difficult. I am not trying to sit here and say that you should stop giving to the church or that you should not give to the church if it hurts. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying to take that kind of teaching and put it on this text as an imposition. Rather, in this story, this woman serves as an example of a victim of a system that has taken advantage of her and has truly devoured her house. We have just laid out that this is a bad system, that these men devour widows' houses, and then, oh look, here comes a widow. Which should not lead us to the conclusion of, well, surely they wouldn't have devoured that widow's house. This is an exception to the rule. No. This is the very demographic that Jesus has just said that they consume. Those who would put forward that this woman is to serve as a hero or an example to be followed say that the heart of giving is what's important. But the Bible tells us nothing about this woman's heart. We don't even know that she was a true believer. In fact, we have no reason to believe she was. We've already established the system that she finds herself in is broken, is corrupt. 
led by greedy hypocrites who are looking to take advantage of people like her, who promote a works-based system of salvation. To look at this situation and think of this woman's giving all that she had to these wicked men would be like seeing an elderly woman today donating her life savings to prosperity gospel teachers such as Kenneth Copeland. How would you react if you found out someone had just donated, this old elderly woman had just donated all of her life savings to Kenneth Copeland Ministries? We would not rejoice in that, would we? That would, that would cause us mourning. That, that woman is a victim. I can speak from personal experience that my mama, as she began to get advanced in age, um, she began to, to have the early onsets of dementia, and what we found out later to be the fact that my memo ended up donating thousands and thousands of dollars to the Trinity Broadcasting Network, TBN, to guys like Kenneth Copeland and Joel Olstein and other false teachers that were promoting a bad system, that were teaching bad religion. And I can tell you it did not cause me rejoicing. Even though my memo was not doing so out of a heart of uh, guile, like, I didn't, didn't think my memo was, was wicked for doing what she had done. She was not the villain in the situation. She was a victim. And I would have told her, don't give all of your money to these bad systems. It was not something to be rejoiced over, something that caused us mourning and pain and frustration because she had been taken advantage of the same way the widow in this story was taken advantage of and had given all that she had to live on to these false teachers. So after spending all of this time teaching, hanging out in the temple, Jesus did not celebrate this either. Jesus was not celebrating this woman as a victim. Instead, as we see in the following verses, he declared judgment. Point number three, the destruction of the false system. After spending time in the, in the temple teaching, debating with the scribes, the Pharisees, observing this false system and its victims, Jesus makes a declaration that stuns the crowd. What does Jesus say in verses 5 and 6? He said, And while some were speaking in the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus has just declared he is going to tear down the temple. It's going to be destroyed, brought to ruin. The other gospels tell us that Jesus and his disciples had walked out of the temple. They had left the temple at this time. And while they were on the way to the Mount of Olives, one of his disciples, as we see in Mark's account, turns and looks at the temple and remarks and says, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. To me, this disciple seemed pretty oblivious to everything that has just happened, Right? Jesus has just gone on and on about the false system that they had found themselves in here in the temple, about the false teachers, all the wickedness and the corruption. And this disciple, as they're walking away, is like, yeah, but the buildings sure are pretty. Isn't this great, Jesus? He was oblivious. Jesus then has something important to say. He says, I'm going to tear this system down. After hearing Jesus' con condemnation of the religious system, after observing a victim of such a system who came, and, and instead of being cared for the way Scripture calls us to, she had been, in essence, eaten by the system, consumed 
This disciple now thinks it's a good idea to point out the beauty of the temple, which had become the home of such a system. Jesus' prediction that the temple would be destroyed was more than just a physical destruction of a building, though that would happen in the year 70 AD. It was an indication that this false religious system that the Jews had created, that the scribes, the Pharisees, had built up to their own glory would be destroyed and would be replaced by something far greater. As I said in the introduction, there is reason for hope in these verses. Jesus has indeed, in his death and resurrection, torn down the false system, the false religion with its unattainable works-based righteousness and replaced it with something new, something better, a new and better system, a new and better temple. Jesus, unimpressed by the splendor of the temple in Jerusalem, tears it down. And what does he rebuild in its place? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 gives us the answer. Where Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is now the temple of God, the new and better temple, the new and better system. This collection of redeemed sinners because that's what we are, right? None of us is righteous on our own. None of us is without guilt. We are together a collection of redeemed sinners, bearing a righteousness that was not earned through the giving of alms or the burning of sacrifices, but was imputed to us by Christ. His righteousness credited to us. Think about that. Jesus has said, I will destroy the temple in Jerusalem. But of this temple now, the church, his redeemed people, he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That temple was susceptible to decay. This temple is everlasting. And as the church, as the people of God, we rejoice that Christ did not tolerate this old, bad religious system but that he tore down this old system and replaced it with something new according to the new covenant predicted in the Old Testament. Jesus then concludes this section with a warning and with an encouragement in verses eight and nine. He says, and he said, see that you are not led astray for many will come in my name saying, I am he and this, the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. He warns them to watch out for false teachers, to not be led astray by them. Jesus knew that these false teachers were not the last to come by any means. We can all attest to that. They were by no means the last false teachers to come. And Jesus warns, do not go after them. Do not be led astray. That there would come false teachers, even some who would claim to be Christ who would claim that they have come in his name. But he says, do not follow after them. And there have indeed been many false teachers. 
But the end of those false teachers, should they not repent and turn to Christ, will be the same as the false teachers in our text today. Great condemnation. Jesus then goes on in verse 9 to encourage them, do not be terrified when you hear of wars and tumults. But remember that this means that the end is coming. And as we have just established, the church of God will remain and will be victorious and will go on for all of eternity. Amen? We are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, an everlasting kingdom. A kingdom not made up of false religious systems, not one that seeks to glorify ourselves, one that seeks to glorify the Lord and care for his people. There are a few applications that could be made from this text. Number one, that the heart behind the false system is still a threat for the church today. And we have to guard against it in our own lives and in the churches. Everything that was said of these false teachers, we are prone to falling into the same things. We are prone to falling into pride. I can tell you right now, it is especially prone for pastors to fall into this kind of pride. I can tell you right now, my heart, there is a temptation to want to be viewed as a great teacher, to want to be viewed with respect. We were at uh, the local Baptist Association annual meeting yesterday, myself and Matt. And I can tell you right now, in the back of my mind, in my heart, in my sinfulness, there is a desire to want to be known as great among these teachers. These are great pastors, teachers of the word of God, many of them who've been doing it for years and who I greatly respect. And this is just me telling you about what, it, what my heart is capable of, what I'm prone to, that I wanted to be known by them. I want to be respected by them. I want them to think I'm a good teacher. And all of that is just pride. It's foolishness. It's the root of what started for the scribes and the Pharisees. And we are all capable of this. We have to guard against this pride, this hypocrisy, this desire for status. Also, that the neglect of the weak and the poor is still a danger for the church today also. Remember, this woman in our text today was an active member of the religious community, and yet she was being neglected. She was taken advantage of. So two things that ought to mark or ought to be a concern if we consider avoiding becoming a false religious system is one, that we avoid pride and hypocrisy, hypocrisy and being setting ourselves up as great, and two, that we are caring for the most vulnerable in our midst. What does James say? Religion that is pure and faultless is what? That we look after orphans and widows. So we need to be careful as a church. Are we caring for the weakest among us? Are we caring for the widows, for the poor, for the powerless? Or are they being eaten? Are they being neglected? And finally, the last thing is that the more we know the truth, the more accountable we are for what we do or don't do with that knowledge. This is something that we have to recognize. This does not mean that we avoid learning, that we avoid knowing the scriptures, that we avoid seeking after God so that we will have less accountability. That might be a temptation. No, what it means is that we, as J.C. Ryle says, adorn our lives, or excuse me, adorn our doctrine with our lives. That we live as though we know the truth and have been changed by the truth. And in doing so, we will experience the greatest amount of joy and God will receive the greatest glory.